I grew up in the days of Looney Tunes, and those cartoons depicted angry characters with red, steaming noses. Sometimes a fuse would burn down to their face, and then, boom. This comes from our physiology. When we get angry, our faces turn red, and they become hot. Ancient cultures had the same experience, and it influenced their language. So words like nose, heat, hot nose, long nose, or short nose were all used to describe anger. To be hot-nosed was to be angry. To be short-nosed was to have a short fuse. Kaylee, before researching this episode, how many times would you have guessed that the Old Testament talked about noses? Noses? I can't think of any nose stories. I probably would have hedged and guessed two or three, but I would have been way off. The Old Testament mentions noses 269 times. That's one nose every three and a half chapters. God's people were super nosy, I suppose. But these verses were not talking about actual noses. They were talking about anger and the different ways it was experienced. And when it comes to God's experience of anger, he describes himself with the common Hebrew expression, erikapayim, or long nose. God doesn't have an actual nose, rather he's making the point, in a way that the Hebrews would have understood, that he has a long fuse. His nose does not quickly become hot. This expression shows up in some really key places, like when God introduces himself in Exodus 34, verse 6, describing his character for the first time. The Lord says he's merciful and gracious, Eric Apayim, long in nose, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God experiences anger, but his fuse is long. He is slow to anger. This gets at an idea that's worth meditating upon. God's experience of anger works much differently than ours. We can treat anger as if it's sinful. When my kids get angry, I can rush to scold them for it. But if God gets angry, then it cannot be as simple as to say that anger is wrong. And Paul picks up on that when he tells us to be angry and not sin. So what's going on? Obviously, there is a type of anger that is appropriate and a type that is sinful. The Lord, in His anger, remains self-controlled. His anger is not rash or extreme. It's measured and purposeful. And His anger flows from His love. That is key. Anger, in its righteous form, is the appropriate emotional response whenever anything or anyone we love is threatened. Let's digest this. If we see a stranger attack someone, we feel anger because we love strangers. That kind of public anger is not very intense, though, because our love for strangers is limited. But if the attack lands against a friend, our anger is much deeper. And if it lands against my child, my wrath will be consuming. Anger grows proportionally to our love and proportionally to the threat against that love. So there is a good and appropriate anger for every love that is threatened. Righteous anger is love rushing to defend. The problem, then, is not our feelings of anger. The problem is that we love all the wrong things. Our anger is miscalibrated. Sometimes it's too strong, other times too weak, or altogether missing. 
When I'm angrier about being cut off on the road than I am about the Uyghurs of China being forced into concentration camps, I reveal that my love is miscalibrated. I love myself far too much, and I love the Uyghurs too little. There is a threatened love at the root of every anger. And usually, love of self or love of some other idol is behind our sinful anger. And a lack of anger can sometimes betray a lack of love, like when we're apathetic about racist violence or unreached people groups receiving no concern. And when we do get angry, we often lack self-control. We become controlled by our anger rather than wielding it righteously toward the defense of our threatened love. But the Lord loves perfectly. His anger is always based on love and always proportional to the threat. It is perfectly calibrated. His anger is always for the right reasons and God is always self-controlled in his anger. So God's anger is actually good news to us because we are objects of God's love. His anger is not directed against his children, but rather for their protection. God's anger doesn't work the way ours does because his love is so unlike our own. And the things we consider threatening aren't always the same things that God sees as threats. So let's take a look at the perplexing, sometimes mysterious anger of God. We have this idea in the West that when God is angry with someone, he throws lightning bolts at them. But this imagery is actually from Greek mythology, not the Bible. A lot of people say that the God of the Old Testament is angry, but this is actually a misreading. We often assume anger is present in certain stories when the Bible actually avoids that connection. The Bible doesn't say that God was angry in stories of the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, or Sodom and Gomorrah. Scripture describes God feeling grieved or amused or regretful, but not angry. So when does the Bible say God gets angry? What does that look like? The first time the Lord gets angry is with Moses in Exodus 4. In that story, God invited Moses into his rescue plan to save the enslaved Hebrews. And five times, Moses rebuffs God's plan. He basically refuses to be God's man for the job. Which, imagine that encountering the living God, the one who wrote the laws of space and time, who shepherds the stars through space. And he calls you from a miraculous fire to join his rescue mission. How audacious to make excuses. Moses' repeated refusal is an offense to God's name and a threat to God's people, things he loves. So after the fifth no, God feels anger, but his anger doesn't play out how we might expect. Exodus 4.14 says God's anger was kindled against Moses. So he, what, rained down brimstone? Let loose a plague? No, he told Moses to have his brother Aaron help him. Aaron would speak for Moses. At first glance, this seems really odd. Yeah, he sort of gave Moses what he was asking for. Moses didn't want to mediate between God and Pharaoh, so God relented. God would use Aaron instead, and with that, the priestly line would come through Aaron instead of Moses. And this is a pattern we see through scripture. When God is angry, he does something that sounds tame, but actually should terrify us. He gives us what we want. 
The elevation of Aaron turned out to not be a good thing for God's people. If you pay attention, the priestly line is almost always portrayed negatively. Aaron's first priestly act was to build an idolatrous golden calf, and his son's first priestly act was to desecrate the tabernacle. So then, in hindsight, Moses really blew it. And we see that God's anger does not look like a big fire or flood. It instead looks like us being turned over to the sin that we're asking for. repeatedly emphasizes that the Lord disciplines those he loves. We often think that God's discipline is a sign of his anger, but actually the opposite is true. David illustrates this in Psalm 32. He says, When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So David sees that the Lord's mercy took a strange form. The Lord relentlessly sapped his strength. His hand was heavy on David. Why? Because the Lord loved David. David was entrapped in sin, and the Lord was disciplining him in love. God was unwilling to hand David over to the sin that he was pursuing. God's discipline is a sign of His love. And when God gets angry, He withdraws that discipline. He gives people what they insist upon. He stops fighting them and so allows sin to entrap them, uncontested. A clear illustration of this pattern comes from Psalm 115. There, idolaters are warned. God says, Their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Those who make them will become like them. So, idols are dumb, and if you worship them, God will hand you over to the same senselessness. This should sober us. When we stray into sin, if we feel guilt and shame, that is the Lord's mercy and a sign that He has not stopped pursuing our hearts through His Spirit. But idolatry dampens our senses. If we persist in idolatry, we may become too numb to repent. Such a person no longer hears the Spirit or feels the guilt of sin. On that day, when God hands him over to his sin, the idolater feels free since God is no longer bothering him about his sin. But actually, he is trapped forever receiving what he wanted. If you, listener, are living in something that you know to be sinful and you don't feel as bad about it as you used to, I beg you, find no comfort in that. God's mercy convicts us of sin. A numbing of our conviction is not a sign that God has changed his mind, but rather a warning that our senses are nearly numb. Proverbs gives us a vivid picture of thinking something is good when it is actually a form of death. In the first eight chapters, the author warns of a figurative, adulterous woman. She's beautiful and seductive, 
and young men see her and go into her house. The adulterous woman promises life, just like the Lord. But then, in Proverbs 9, she's exposed for who she is. The adulterous woman is unmasked and shown to be Lady Folly. And inside her house, the dead are lined up. This conversation started with the Lord being Erechopayim. We started with God being slow to anger. It took God until Exodus 4 to become angry, in response to Moses' five-fold refusal to follow God's instructions. He also became angry at Pharaoh, but gave him ten chances to repent. He became angry with Israel, but gave them 800 years and countless prophetic warnings to turn from their rebellion. And then he still restored them to their land. He bears with us and has waited more than 2,000 years to return to the earth because he is patient. 2 Peter 2.3 describes this patience. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is slow to anger, and there's some comfort in that. He forgives us seven times 77 times. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. But he also does get angry, and there's comfort in that too. Let's talk about that. What does God's anger mean for us? Understanding his anger has three main implications. First, it serves as a warning. As we discussed earlier, when our conscience becomes numb, we should fear the Lord and repent. We ought to be afraid that God will give us what we want. The second implication is about our own anger. What do we get angry about? And what does that say about what we love? What heart idols are revealed by our inordinate anger over petty things? When do we feel holy anger, and how should we express that anger? Like we said, God's anger is birthed from His love. And just as He invites us into His love, He also invites us into His anger. The Lord invites us to be angry to the right degree in response to the right things, not lashing out, but measured and self-controlled. Lastly, some of you listening to this episode, you just need to know that though God is slow to anger, He does get angry. Some of you have been deeply hurt and grieved, or maybe even abused, and you have wondered if the Lord sees or even cares. He sees. He knows. He is angry. Anger is love defending its beloved, and the Lord loves you. Every single sin that has ever occurred under the sun will be met with perfect justice, either paid on the cross or else paid in the place of justice. God will not acquiesce to any of the evils committed against you. Justice will be restored and will reign forever. The power to forgive is found in this assurance. If God is furious about our abuse, And if we can trust that justice will be restored, then we don't have to carry the weight of bitterness. We can let oppressors off our hook because they are on God's hook. Only He can carry the weight of restoring everything to right. And someday, He will. 
We'll leave with a quote from Nahum 1.3. The Lord is Erechapayim, and great in power. But the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Thank you.